And if you'd have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 21, talking about the triumphal entry here. The word amnesty comes from the Greek word amnestia, and it means oblivion or nothingness. It's where we get the word amnesia, meaning to forget. By definition, it's an act of justice where a supreme power restores the guilty to a state of innocence. All previous legal status and condition has been obliterated. In the United Kingdom, it's a privilege granted by the one who wears the crown. Amnesty is a familiar word for us today because if you've been listening to the news at all, there's a great debate, Capitol Hill, of what do we do with uh, supposedly 12 million illegal immigrants. Are we supposed to grant them amnesty to live in the United States? And there really are two questions. One, should the sovereign power or the supreme power, in this case, the United States government, grant amnesty to these 12 million people? The second question is, can the government? Can the government bear the weight of giving amnesty to 12 million people. You see, because amnesty isn't free, someone has to bear the weight of the amnesty. And so it's a complex problem, and it's a problem that we should be praying for our leaders to come to a good solution on. Amnesty as a concept only makes sense as if a person or group actually is in a a condition, a legal status, where they need help. And that if there is a supreme power that can actually offer a kind of help that can both pardon, we need a supreme, if we're in trouble, we need a supreme power that can pardon, but that supreme power must be able to bear the weight of that pardon. It's one thing to just say it, It's another thing to be able to bear the weight of the pardon that you're promising. Probably most of us here would agree that someday we're going to stand before some kind of supreme power or supreme being. You might think of him as a king. If we are honest with ourselves, we're at least concerned about our standing. If you're really honest with yourself, and you believe that there is some kind of supreme power, whatever it is, when you die and you have to stand before it, if you're honest, you're at least a little concerned about your legal standing. You see, because your personal record, I'm sure, is not unlike mine, at best, it's shaky. It's not hard for any of us to think of times when We have sworn allegiance to something or someone else. We've allowed something else to rule our lives. Ego, fear, success, greed, family, jealousy, physical pleasures, security. Nobody here has a clean record 
from using other people, using God's creation, and trying to use God himself in order to advance their own agenda. And so given that, and we think we're going to stand before somebody that's supreme, then we're nervously wondering whether it's out loud to a group of friends or we're laying in our bed at night. Who is the king? And then what is his nature? I mean, if I'm going to face somebody, who is it? Who am I going to stand before? And then on the, right on the heels of that, when you closely examine your life, it doesn't even have to be closely, you're, you're going to ask this next question, what is his nature? What is he going to be like when he looks at me? Well, the text today speaks to both of those questions. Jesus clearly identifies himself and he declares himself as the king. And with his declaration, he reveals his nature. So we're going to look at Christ and how he declares himself as the king. And then we're going to look at the text and see what about his declaration helps us understand the nature of the king. First, the identity of the king. Jesus identifies himself in several remarkable ways. The first, he identifies or declares himself as the king through the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus identifies himself first as the king by appealing back to the Old Testament. The word of God, he goes back to it and says, I'm the king. In this particular passage, Jesus is like a thousand other Jewish pilgrims, maybe a million. They're converging from all over the area onto Jerusalem because of the Passover. And they're coming to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus with his disciples is just like thousands of others making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. It's the time of year when everybody's sort of in a celebratory mood. They're remembering back. Remember the people of Israel? They're remembering back and saying, I remember when I was in bondage and now I'm going to celebrate that I've been freed from that bondage from Egypt. And so they're just excited. There's an enthusiasm about the pilgrims that are coming saying, we remember when we were slaves and now we're recalling that we've been freed from that. And so Jesus arrives outside of Jerusalem five days before the Passover on this day in a small town called Bethage. And he stops his disciples. And he tells them on this visit to Jerusalem, I'm going to go in in a different way. I've never gone into Jerusalem in this way. I've been there many times, but today I'm going to go in riding on a donkey. He does so in verse four in order to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet Zechariah 500 years before. Who spoke about a day when a king was going to arrive. Zechariah is a prophet to the people who have returned from captivity from Babylon. And he's saying people exiles one day a king is going to arrive. He's going to arrive just like this. And Christ appeals back to that prophecy 500 years ago, and he fulfills it by coming into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Now, the Jewish pilgrims are celebrating their 
freedom from Egypt, from Egypt, but they're also very hungry for freedom from the Roman government. Yes, they had escaped out of Egypt. They'd come to Israel. They'd been deported. They'd come back. And now here, several thousand years later or a thousand years later, the Roman government has come back in and now they're the oppressor. And so the Jewish pilgrims are remembering how God had offered this great salvation and they're hungry for it again. We want a king that's going to obliterate the Roman government and set ourselves back up as the rulers. And so when Jesus comes in riding on this donkey, it's not a vague memory for the pilgrims. They remember Zechariah 9.9. And they're coming in behind and saying, Okay, here he comes. Here is the king. And they begin to give him the red carpet treatment. They take off their cloaks and they lay it on the ground. And then they quote from the psalm, 118, and they say this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. And that word means, Save us now. Hosanna in the highest. Behold, Zechariah says. This is a word that in uh, the King James, you might remember it as this. Lo. Remember that word? Lo or behold. Pay attention, Zechariah saying, the one who's coming in on the donkey, he's the king. And everybody's pointing to Jesus and saying, he's fulfilling this prophecy. Everybody's singing, blessed is he who comes into the name of the Lord. And Jesus lets them sing. Everybody understands what it's pointing to. And Jesus takes it. Notice in verse 15, the chief priests and the teachers are together or the scribes. It may be in your translation they clearly understood the implications of what was happening. Look at the question they asked. Do you hear what they're saying? I mean, we hear what we're, they're saying. We're the scholars. We understand the Old Testament. And we understand that when they start saying that, they're making an assumption that you're the king. And they're saying, stop. You can't let this go on. And <laughs> I love Jesus' response. Do you hear what they're saying? Yeah. Comma. Yes, absolutely. I have no question about what they're saying. I clearly understand what they're saying. And then he does something that's very stunning. He quotes from Psalm 8. And that's written in your outline. Psalm 8, and he quotes from Psalm 8-2, but I want to back up to 8-1 because everyone would have understood the context of this. And if you look in your outline, you'll see this. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Some of you probably sung a song like that. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And you notice the first word, Lord, is all capitalized. That in the Old Testament is saying that's the name of God. That's Yahweh. That's the self-existent one. And he's the self-existent one. Lord, he's our Lord in lowercase letters. Notice that. And that word is the word Adonai. And that's where we get the word sovereignty. The self-existent sovereign one. That's what they're calling Jesus. He's the supreme 
power. You have set your glory above the heavens from the lips of children and infants. You have ordained praise. This worship now coming from this little makeshift children's choir has actually been ordained. And that word in the Hebrew means a perfect fit. Praise is coming out of a makeshift children's choir that's a perfect fit. It's been ordained. It's perfectly fitted for one person. And that one person is the self-existent, sovereign one to whom they're singing. And they're singing that to Christ. And he takes it for himself. The chief priests and the teachers are saying, don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus is saying something like this. Yes, well, you know, I ordered up this little children's choir for myself a thousand years ago. I'm glad they showed up on time. Don't they sound great? You see, everything about that passage, he's owning for himself. Everyone is clearly understanding the person walking in is claiming himself as the king. And the first thing I want you to see is what Jesus wants everyone to see is that everything written in the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Take your eyes off yourself. Take your eyes off of everything else and behold the king. Secondly, Jesus declares that he is the king by his power over nature. This is something that's... uh, Quickly passed by, just noticed it myself this week. Actually, in another text, a parallel text in Mark, Jesus goes to get a donkey or he sends some people ahead to get a donkey. What's unique about the donkey? Remember this from another passage? It's a donkey that's never been ridden. Now, when I would go to summer camp, And we would have kids that come and we'd have horses at the camp that I would go to, Windy Gap. And a lot of the kids would not have ridden a horse. In a moment of comic relief, I would stand up and say, don't fear if you've never ridden a horse. For you, we have horses that have never been ridden. (laughs) And there was this nervous laughter amongst the students there going, you know, I don't really want that horse. And why is that? Because if you get on an animal like a mule that's never been written, immediately it's going to buck you off. That's its nature, to resist a master until it's broken. And Jesus takes a donkey that's never been ridden, and he sits on it, and it's completely still. As if to say, the king has come, the king over all of nature is sitting on the donkey, and the donkey knows his master. Jesus is the king because he's fulfilling everything that's been said in the Old Testament. He's the king because he's the king over all of nature. And we see a little picture of it in here. If you read in Isaiah 11, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and the little child will lead them. All of the brokenness that we see in creation, when the king comes, it gets repaired. And it goes back to the way it should have been 
And it says this in the psalmist, the trees will clap their hands. The mountains were burst into a song. And look, if the children's choir hadn't shown up on time, Jesus had plan B. You know what it was? The rocks are going to cry out. If the children's choir doesn't seem to get it right, well, I'll just call the rocks to cry out and say, here's the king. So all of scripture is pointing to Jesus. All of nature comes underneath the power and the control of the king. And that is Christ. Finally, Jesus declares he is the king over people by his visit to the temple. When the children come up and they're singing Hosanna and they're waving palm branches, we kind of have this association with that's a kind of a symbol of peace. That's a, a, a song of peace and uh, tranquility. And that's not what it would have been at that particular time. The palm branches for a Jewish person to wave would have been a symbol of independence. And you can imagine the Roman government very tight on its citizenship. You have a group of people now waving what for us would have been like an American flag. Say, no, this is our sovereign here. And they're waving their American flag and they're saying, Hosanna, save us right now from this Roman government. That's why during this time of Passover, they had a, a large influx of Roman guards because they knew this was a time that if a revolution was going to spark, it was going to spark right here. So it was not hard to get a garrison of Roman guards to come find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There were lots of them around to protect from that happening, from somebody to come in and declare that he's the king. Well, the people were mistaken because they wanted salvation from the Roman government. And I want you to notice that when Jesus arrives into Jerusalem, he doesn't go to the capital. When Jesus comes in, he does not go to clean up the capital. You see, the capital is a place where men rule over men. We make laws and then we live underneath those laws. Where does he go? He goes to the temple. The temple is a place where God rules and everybody comes underneath God's rule. And he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to clean up and clean out that place. And I'm going to be the person that now rules over all of people. I'm not just another ordinary man. Hundreds of people across time have come into capitals and overthrown governments. Christ is doing something very different by coming into the temple and not the capital. In another passage, and it's the place, it's really the statement that gets Jesus killed. He says, you can destroy this temple. And I will raise it up again in three days. And he was referring to himself. So Christ comes in. You have to understand the context here. There's a, a very pregnant moment. All of these people are primarily Jewish pilgrims. They're wanting a king like David, a person that would come up and set themselves up over everyone else. And in the Old Testament, the presence of God was found primarily in the temple. The Shekinah glory comes down into this place and you can't get in touch with it. You can't see it. 
It'll kill you if you get too close. And that's why the temple is such a unique place. And Christ comes in to this place. And it's like he gets on one side of the temple that's on the top of the mountain of Jerusalem. And he begins to do this. And he just pushes it all the way across and down the cliff. And there is no temple. And he steps back on the stage and says, I am the temple. You don't need to come to a place anymore to find God. To find God, you must now come to me. The only way to get in touch with the presence of God now is to come and worship me. So Christ is setting himself up in this place as the king. According to all of the Old Testament, it's all pointing to Christ. Everybody's singing about Christ and he's accepting it. All of nature is saying Christ is the king. And now he's coming to say, and now I rule over all of people. Even if you're not a believer here, even if you're here and not a believer, that's a better way to say that. You have come to church thinking the rest of these people here are thinking they're going to get in touch with God in some form or fashion. And why else would you come? And Christ is saying, you're not going to find it in a place. That's why in the New Testament, where did the New Testament begin to meet? The New Testament church. In little rinky-dinky dens and living rooms and mud huts all over the place. Not in anything fancy, not in anything elaborate, because all of that had been pushed off the cliff. And Christ is saying, now I'm the way, I'm the only way to get in touch, to step into the presence of God. Now you have to come into me. So there's no question here that Christ is setting himself up as the king, a unique king. That's question number one. Christ is the king. It's possible to recognize the king, but still question his nature. You could say, well, I see what you're saying, Paul, but I'm curious as to his nature. If I'm going to stand before this king, what is it going to be like? Several years ago, I was not paying attention as I was driving home from Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, I was going just over the speed limit, enough for the gentleman to pull me over and uh, give me a kind little lecture about going over the speed limit. And I said, well, you know, officer, I'm not trying to say I wasn't speeding, but where were you? He said, sir, I was in the right-hand lane as you passed me. (laughs) Oh, okay. I guess I wasn't paying attention. And so that's not a good thing. And so I wasn't going to talk my way out of that. And he gave me a ticket. And I got the great opportunity to go and be in a courthouse in Raleigh, North Carolina. And so if you've had this wonderful experience, I suspect many of you have, You get an opportunity to meet a fine gentleman who's the district attorney. And he will say to you, you should offer a prayer for judgment. And my question to the district attorney is, can you tell me the nature of the judge today? Is he a nice guy? Because, see, I see him 
There's no question who the judge is. He's sitting right up there. He's got a big black robe. And I'm looking at him. And he's looking at me. And I have to walk towards him. And I'm just hoping he's had a great breakfast or, you know, all things have gone well because I'm guilty. I know I'm guilty. And he has the power to do whatever he wants. And I can come up and ask for a prayer for judgment, not pray for judgment. But in the legal terms, that means a removal of judgment. And I'm coming in and I'm saying, please, judge, can you remove this judgment? Now, that's what's going to happen to us. We're going to stand before the sovereign king and we're going to be coming forward asking, what is his nature? We're guilty, but what is his nature? And Jesus, I think, points to three things that help us in this regard. The day Jesus rides into Jerusalem, I want you to notice that he's not on a war horse and he's not riding a chariot which is mentioned in Zechariah 9.10. Zechariah 9.9 is what was quoted. In Zechariah 9.10, he's not coming in on a war horse. He's not coming in on a chariot. He's coming in humbly riding a donkey. This is the day for the Jewish pilgrims that's called Lamb Selection Sunday. So all the pilgrims there are saying, this is the lamb that for us is going to be killed. And that's the day Jesus decides to come in to Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Sunday. Riding a donkey, saying to everybody, do you see? Do you see the king? Do you see his nature? He's not coming in on a war horse. He's not coming in on a chariot. He's coming in like a lamb led to be slaughtered on your behalf. That's the nature of Christ's coming. He has come to lay down His life for you. And I can't imagine a picture being any more approachable than a lamb. But I want you to know, I want you to pay attention carefully to this. If you don't believe that Jesus is the king, I want you to hear these words from Revelation 19. John, seeing what's going to happen at the end of all time, says this. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. One day, everybody meets the King. Now is the day for salvation to meet the King who is the Lamb. 
And that's what he's trying to tell everybody in Jerusalem. And that's what he's trying to tell you. And that's what he's trying to tell me. The king comes as a lamb and the king comes for all kinds of people. If you were to go back and look at Zechariah 9:10 or Isaiah 56, 7 and 8, which were quoted in the text, you would read this. The king will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 56, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. See, it's not just a little sect of people like the Jewish people. It's meant for everybody. And the amnesty that Christ, the Lamb, is giving away is obliterating all ethnic and racial division. What is unique is Christ. And you find your uniqueness in Him. And those who come can get amnesty from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. So if you're wondering if Christ would have you, the answer is yes. Because He comes as a lamb. He comes for all kinds of people. And finally, I want you to notice His heart. Jesus comes into the temple, verse 12. And I have not noticed this until this week. Who is He driving out? See, this was sort of my picture, I guess just not reading carefully. He's just driving out all the sort of the money changers. All the wicked people that are there selling something. That's not what the text says. He's driving out everybody who bought or sold. Any pilgrim who came in, anybody there that was trying to meet the pilgrim's need by selling something. He's driving all of these people out of the temple. As if to say there is no amnesty for those who think they can buy or earn their way in. There is no amnesty for anyone who thinks they can show up and do some religious duty like get baptized, take communion, fast, tithe, or show up at church on Easter and Christmas. There is no amnesty for those people. Those people get driven out. And I love the picture. All the religious people. Jesus with a whip in his hands. A very unusual picture of Jesus. He's driving all the religious people out. And they're scurrying around. And they're trying to find the exit. And they're, they're stumbling over each other. And they're pouring through the exit. All the people who can run and are religious. And then in the entrance door, look who's coming. You see it in the text? The blind and the lame. The people who are, who are staggering and dragging along. Maybe the lame person is helping the blind person. The blind person is helping the lame person. All of the people who know that they're desperately in need of a Savior, get the Savior. All of the people who think they can buy it or earn it or don't really need it in some way, 
they get driven out. And so the heart of Christ is coming out to those of you who understand that you're blind and lame. Those who understand that they're crippled. Those are people who understand that they couldn't possibly stand before a sovereign ruler without amnesty. The psalmist says it this way. God, you do not delight in sacrifice. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The people who have the most difficult time recognizing Jesus, and this would have been me previously, are people who don't think that they're really broken. But come, all you who are blind and lame. See the king. Behold the king. The king who rules over all of nature. The king who rules over all of humanity. The king who's been pointed to from the very beginning of the written word. Everything is pointing towards Jesus. It's interesting that there's all this commotion, all this noise, all these pilgrims pouring in. And people in the city, they ask this question. It's the question that you have to ask and you have to answer. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Is he the king? Let's pray. Oh God, there would have been a day I would have heard this. Walked out. Thought about lunch. Thought about a golf tournament. Thought about a nap. Thought about a girlfriend. Thought about a test. Consumed by a problem. Consumed by myself. And so I didn't know that I was blind or lame until... You came and opened my eyes that I might see myself and see you. And that's what I pray that you would do for these people. Lord, for those who have lost sight of the King, I pray for their encouragement today. They would see you. They would know your nature No matter how deformed they've gotten, they would know you're the Lamb. You're approachable. You're coming for them. For those who are looking for a way, would they see you as the way? 
Lord, I pray that you would take our minds and transform them, use them in this few minutes to think about eternal things. As we come and give in an act of worship for our offering, we're just taking temporary items, transferring them back into your hands and praying for multiplication of glory around the globe. May it be so. In Christ's name, amen.